It's time to go back out. Ugh, I simply cannot. You have to. It's your encore. All right, I'll go out, but I'm not playing, you know, it. It? I am not playing. The pinwheels of my dreams reflect the sunlight and the lemons in the trees beyond the plaza where we kissed. But it's your big hit. It defined a whole era. Nevertheless, I cannot stand to play it. When people come to a Kion Wolf show, they expect to hear the pinwheels of my dreams reflect the sunlight and the lemons in the trees beyond the plaza where we kissed. It's been your signature song for two decades. Well, that's just it. It's so 90s. It reeks of cocaine and Rob Lowe and Tamagotchis and Clarence Thomas. Why can't I play one of my new compositions? Which one? The dragons of my thoughts conduct the current of the river and the sun beside the mountain where we climbed. Look, don't get me wrong. The dragons of my thoughts conduct the current of the river and the sun beside the mountain where we climbed is a very nice song, but it's no the pinwheels of my dreams reflect the sunlight and the lemons in the trees beyond the plaza where we kissed. This is my final offer. Will you still bite the head off a bat? Well, the fans do love it. Do you have a nice one? I can dip it in chocolate. We have a bargain. Now, I believe some other musical artists on tour, the Avid Brothers, Orleans, and Toad the Wet Sprocket, will be talking about their careers. Fascinating. And now, he was the original drummer in The Blowfish, but he was fired for using Hootie's hairbrush, Colin McEnroe. I know if you've seen her, you tell me, cause you are my friends, right? I've got to find her and find out the trouble she's in That's that's how I got to Memphis. That's two that's in a row. That's very complicated. That's how I got to Memphis. And actually, that's the version that was done by the Avid brothers uh, in this amazing documentary called, I think, Another Day, Another Time. It was sort of connected with Inside Lou and Davis. Why am I mentioning all this? Because, in fact, the Avid brothers will be playing at the Toyota Oakdale Theater in Wallingford on Friday. That's August 8th at 7.30. The voice that you heard singing was that of Seth Avett, and the voice that you're about to hear speaking is also conveniently that of Seth Avett. Uh, Seth Avett, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be on it. It's incredibly convenient that that voice is my own. Who would have known that I would have ended up on the phone? Right, exactly. <laughs> we didn't plan this at all. I just I just, I dialed a random number after playing that song, and there you were. It's, it's, and here I am. It's, right. it's as if it were meant to be. Watching that documentary, I mean, be, even being aware of all of the acts individually, and some of them, like the Millcarton kids, I just had never heard of, but right. watching that documentary that had you guys and, and Rihanna Giddens from the Carolina Chocolate Drops and the Punch Brothers, and there really was, for me, and I'm not as familiar, obviously, with this stuff, I get this incredibly energized sense that whatever it is we call that music, Americana, or whatever, it really is having kind of an incredible moment. I mean, do you feel that sometimes when you get together with this, these other groups? Absolutely. Though it's, it's hard to uh, distinguish it as a moment. It feels like a current, just like if you're out waist deep in the ocean. Sometimes you feel it a little bit, sometimes you feel it a lot. <laughs> but it seems that it's always there. 
And that night in particular was just sort of a crystalline moment for us and for everyone there. I think that's how I'm actually feeling. I think that it's rare that we that we are so aware of the community of it and the sort of collective spirit of it. I think Americana is a, uh, as good of a of a term that we could use for it. But yeah, that that night, God, it just it you could really feel it. I, and thankfully, that that backstage was so small, and uh, you couldn't really help but just end up in these impromptu jams and these conversations with colleagues and peers and, and a lot of folks that you're always just sort of just barely missing on the road. You might catch them for a minute at a festival and say hello, or maybe not. It, it's always barely crossing paths, but, but never really getting a moment together. So that night was very special for that camaraderie. Yeah, the, the, those backstage scenes, which are a little bit featured in the documentary, are exciting yeah. for us, too, to see you guys. You know, people, you're, you're sitting on the stairs with maybe Joan Baez or something, and it's yeah, right. it's yeah. just kind of amazing stuff. You know, I feel stupid using any genre name like Americana to talk about you or to talk about that show, particularly with you, because, well, first of all, I mean, one thing that you did this year is... Uh, I think at Bonnaroo, you immediately preceded Elton John, so who does not play Ameri- who does not play Americana? What was that juncture like for you guys? Did you guys have any uh, exchange with with Elton John? We did not. We got to hear some of the set running around the backstage, kind of closing the night up and getting ready to go. We got kind of a, a running joke among our, our band and crew about seeing bands at festivals. It's always like, hey. Uh, Elton John's playing. You looking forward to seeing him? Oh, yeah, I can't wait to see him because we never get to see the other bands at festivals. For one reason or another, we always miss them. I got to hear some of it. The, as far as the variety in the lineup, man, that seems not only common for us, but common for the festival world now. It's got very stew-like and very, very mixed up uh, in a good way. And that's sort of who you, Seth Avett, are. I mean, I saw a list, uh, I think it's called a deathbed list or some some list like that that you put together of essential uh, albums, and it was all over the place. It was Miles Davis All-Stars, it was Louis Armstrong, it was Sam Cooke, it was some kind of hip, hip-hop uh, uh, CD that I wasn't even uh, familiar with. I mean, you, your tastes seem to be all over the place, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, Colin, when you say something about how it seems either inaccurate or, or unfair— to put you know that documentary into a category a genre or or us into a genre in reality it's very rare that you can put a quality genuine act and i'm not trying to put the uh, title of quality on us but uh, i feel that when someone finds their genuine voice it rarely fits neatly into a category so i think that it's a bit of an injustice if you're a real music lover to cut out and you know any genre of music i've found breathtaking beauty and quality in, in every genre and i'm very thankful for it. Do you feel as though, you know, that all of those things really are influences? Do you feel as though if Louis Armstrong were in a position to put uh, an Avid Brothers CD into his uh, CD machine up in heaven, he would say, oh yeah, I can I can see where that guy Seth kind of listens to me. <laughs> I think that uh, Louis Armstrong uh, in particular would have a deep and joyous understanding of anything that he heard, which is part of the magnetism, I think, of his music. And, and yeah, I, I think so. I think that he could feel and pick out, and, and especially in, in my my understanding of music and my draw to music is very melody-based. I don't know, sort of um, old-school pop melody-based. I love popular music from his era, uh, and I draw heavily from Sam Cooke and his treatment of melody. I think especially someone who is as virtuosic and understanding of music, I think it kind of depends on the listener, but I think Louis would certainly hear his handprint on our melodies. Oh, I th- I absolutely think so. Uh, we're talking to Seth Avett. Uh, he's uh, the banjo player, vocalist, and pianist with the Avett Brothers. They're going to be playing at the Toyota Oak 
Steel Theater in Wallingford on Friday, August 8th at 7.30 p.m. I want to play a, a something uh, a little bit more recent. Uh, this is Another is Waiting. It's a fake, it's a hoax, it's a nowhere road where no one goes anywhere, anyhow, where you're following your heart rate down. Seth Avett, terrific song. I feel as though you guys are always steering a very complicated course in some ways. Obviously, you draw upon American Roots music. You draw upon bluegrass, but you're not, you're not a traditional bluegrass band. On the other hand, we should mention that, that Magpie and the Dandelion, which is your eighth studio album, I think it went to number five on the Billboard 200. You're really becoming a very, very popular act. And I almost sense even sort of reading comments by your fans and stuff. They're thrilled for your success, but they're sort of worried. Like, what if the Avett brothers become kind of more recognizably commercial? What if they don't, you know, keep that real? I mean, do you, do you guys, are you conscious of that? Do you care about it? Yeah, those are two very um, separate questions. As far as being conscious of it, I would be lying if I said that we weren't. So yes, and it's very much on the periphery. Do we care? We're not really afforded a lot of time or energy to care. What has been proven to us over these nearly 14 years is that the more success we have in tapping into our own hearts and tapping into our own voices and exploring music in a way that is in keeping with the right order, meaning we follow the artistry, we follow the muse, for lack of a better term, the folks that need to connect to that will, and the folks that don't will not, and they, they will find another thing that they do connect with, which is wonderful and fine, and fine by me. I don't ever think in terms of... Um, of a single, I don't ever really until until you know someone comes along and says, "Hey, which song should be the single?" We say, "Ah, oh, yeah, I vote that one." That seems like it would be uh, good for people to hear, but we never write with that in mind. And I'm really at this point, Colin, I've, I've got to say that uh, I really I don't think there's a whole lot of danger as far as us becoming some huge band. There's always that question, you know, like you guys are blowing up, or or, or how come you guys haven't gotten as much acclaim as some of the other bands in, in this genre or whatever. It really kind of depends on the uh, person who's asking the question. I, I, I had a guy the other day see me out in public. He said, hey, man, you're a celebrity. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, really? And he, he kind of did it like kind of like looking at me. He had his head cocked a little bit like, hey, like, you, you're a celebrity. Like, like, don't I know you? Aren't you a celebrity? <laughs> I was like, oh, it kind of depends on who you ask. You know, there's uh, just a lot of folks that would laugh and balk at the idea of me being a celebrity. And then there's some other folks that would put me in that category. And I think that fame and popularity and celebrity is, just as important as it was in high school, which uh, you know is, a, is a, a place where for some people it's very, very important. Eventually they look back at that time and they say, man, that really wasn't very important. <laughs> I think there should be an international law that if you're going to accost a celebrity, you should know who the celebrity is. You know? <laughs> I, I could get on board with that. Yeah. I, I can say that our star has risen enough to where Someone will come up and I'll, I'll get a picture with them. Uh, and they, uh, in particular, may be very excited about, about seeing me and saying hello. And, 
uh, and I'll be excited to see them sign something, take a picture or whatever. The, the thing that's not so fun is, is that's in a, a restaurant or a public place where it turns a bunch of heads in the restaurant. Then you have people coming up that want to get a picture or get a signature that have no reference whatsoever. They're only doing it because what is it, their only opportunity because there's a celebrity in the spot. So it's like, well, I'll sign this, but I mean, you might hear my music afterward and hate it. You know, like, you know, why, why are we, uh, why are we having this exchange without uh, any any real connection? Which is a little bit uh, interesting, but it's fine. It's fine. Right. No. Th- at that point, they're taking the selfie with you as an investment, just in case it turns out you're really right. important. Right. And and let's face it, Colin. There are too many selfies in the world to have selfies for the the, the cause of investment. It's just not good. You know, Steve Martin used to have uh, cards that he would hand people saying, this is to indicate that we have met, and it was a pleasant encounter. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I it, love it. It simplifies the whole exchange, uh, I think. Hey, you get asked about this a lot, but I, I, I'm fascinated by sibling dynamics, partly because I'm an only child. And so, you know, I mean, we just lost one of the Everly Brothers recently, but you can right. you can pick a million different bands, whether it's the Roaches or I used to uh, love a band called the Neils, you know. And siblings seem to have a certain kind of sound that you wonder whether they could possibly arrive at it if they weren't. I mean, do you feel as though you got, if, if there wasn't that brother-to-brother connection, uh, if you and Scott were just sort of guys you met in college, would this, would this be the same band? It's sort of like asking a fish about the water he's swimming in. You may not be able to sort of get up over that question, you know, because it's, it's your life. Well, yeah, I feel that it would be impossible to separate the, the identity of our band from the dynamic of our family tie within it. Everything is, is defined by it, the entire chemistry of the group, the band, the crew, the way we do business, all of it, the way we sing together, the way we offer each other parts, the way we ask for help and for guidance from each other. It, it all comes from, uh, from a connection that started when I was born. So I've always been very saddened to hear about bands that have brothers at the center of them where they have this legendary conflict between them and, and these knockdown drag out fights and the extent of silent treatment between them. It's it's always just been very, very sad to me and I I hate it for anyone that has experienced that. I don't know if it's luck of the draw or what, but Scott and I we just get along so so well and we disagree so rarely and when we do we've really learned to get there to, to get past it to communicate as well as we can and to open our ears up as well as we can and, and hear each other you know all of this was much less scary for me going into it i walked into it with, with a lot a lot more confidence because i had my brother at my side and, and a lot of it that would have scared me otherwise that would have given me anxiety or, or, or nerves about it my first experience was having all, all the way from playing in a room Mexican restaurant or a coffee shop or a bar where either there was no one there or the few people that were there didn't care from swallowing my pride and you know, situations like that all the way up to stepping onto a red carpet kind of situation and having a bunch of flashes going off in your face and, and feeling um, either ostracized or alienated or, or under a microscope or unfit for the moment. All of them were made more manageable and more digestible because I felt strong with my brother and, and that has spread out to the rest of the band as well i read uh one time about uh, jeff and bo bridges who are actors not musicians although they actually do play music too that that whenever right. they work on a movie together basically if they have some downtime the two of them just go back to the, their trailer you know and i mean that's what they really right. want to do they just want to be together and it's sort of a home base you can go to no matter how crazy things get any, any band dynamic can be very complicated and Scott and I sort of accidentally did 20 years of legwork preparing ourselves 
to be able to run a business together and to be able to face these challenges together just by growing up together. And you just can't overstate the value in that. First of all, I wanted to ask, uh, on uh, Friday, August 8th, uh, at the uh, Toyota Oakdale Theater in Wallingford, the Avid Brothers, uh, you've gotten a little bit bigger on stage. Will you have the, the seven-person lineup? How many people are, are, are playing at that show? That's it. It'll be all seven of us, yes, sir. These days, the most the, the best compliment you can give a band these days seems to be the word tight, right? If you say tight, that's like the best right. thing you can be. Was it a little right. sc- was it scary adding three more musicians and, and getting bigger? Because obviously the challenge of tightness increases as you add more people. Well, I'm going to say this at the risk of insulting the core members of the band. Um, <laughs> the three that we have added are in a lot of ways better than us. <laughs> and I, and I, and I will actually, I, I need to throw Joe into this as well, even though he's been with us since 07. Me, Scott, Bob, we have a lot to offer, but we do not have some of the technical ability and the three-dimensional understanding of music that Paul and Joe and Tanya have. And Mike Marsh, let it be known, he's the drummer I always wanted my whole life. <laughs> All four of them are just, they do nothing but help. They know how to how to step in when they need to and how to blend when they need to. And each was added in their own time. You know, we didn't add all of them at once. It was sort of a a stair-stepping into this big Willie Nelson-type seven-people-on-stage kind of deal. We we, we worked our our way into that very gradually. Were they given any instructions about whether to grow beards or not? Because you guys kind of lead the league in beards at times. (laughs) I have personally have given quite a lot of of, uh, of advice and uh, wanted and unwanted advice on beardom to band members and fans and total strangers. Mike Marsh, he grows a great beard. It's all it's all gray. I, I really feel like you're graduating when you grow your beard. It's gray. Oh, I, uh, I did that a long time ago. It's not all it's cracked up to be, believe me. <laughs> oh, it, well, it, no matter what people say about it, it can be interpreted as uh, a wisdom or... Uh, Decrepitude. Or, yeah, that's right, or, or lack of hygiene, I, I imagine. All right, so uh, on that shining note, uh, we're going to let you go, but uh, you also get to pick the song we go out on. So, uh, Seth Avitt, first of all, thank you for joining this, sh- uh, this show today, and uh, tell us what, what song you'd like us to end this segment with. I'd love you to play Vanity. Oh, Vanity. Another okay. one from the new record. Absolutely. Yes, hey, thanks for being with us today. Colin, my pleasure. Thanks for your time. Man. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've got something to say, but it's all That is the song Power. That's actually the live concert No Nukes version of it from, I think, 1979. It's written by John Hall. You're hearing his voice as well as those of James Taylor and Michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers. He has since then wrote, uh, after Fukushima, a song called I Told You So, which I guess uh, he's within his rights to do and to sing. He's joining us now. It's very exciting. Uh, John Hall is uh, many things. Uh, one of the founders and leaders of Orleans is the important one at this moment. Uh, they're coming to the Kate in Old Saybrook on uh, August 2nd. Thank you so much for joining us today, John Hall. My pleasure, Tom. And it's interesting that uh, you played the No Nukes version of Power because 
one of the people singing with me on that version is Carly Simon, who introduced me to Catherine Hepburn on Martha's Vineyard. We were in a restaurant and happened to walk by her table, and Carly knew her well enough to interrupt her and, <laughs> and uh, make the introduction. So uh, it's a little extra magic for me coming to the uh, Performing Arts Center. Right. It's just like a Kurt Vonnegut novel or something. We're all connected. You know, right. All I have to do is sort of look, look at it all, and you'll figure it out. You're probably wondering, where do I know this guy from? And the answer is uh, October 13th, 1976. Orleans is opening for Jackson Brown at the New Haven Coliseum. I was like in about the 20th row, kind of over to the right. Oh, that was you. Yeah, that was me. Uh, and you guys were great that night uh, and, and continue to be great. I, I feel as though, you know, anytime you interview anybody, and, and you're somebody that I've been very aware of for a long time. I'm the kind of person who reads uh, liner notes. Uh, and so as a college student looking at Bonnie Raitt albums, I, I figured out there was somebody named John Hall who sometimes produced them and wrote songs for them. I've known about you for a long time. Anytime you interview somebody that you've known about for a long time, you hope that you're going to get something really definitive and something special. But I feel like on this occasion, there's some way in which your Stephen Colbert interviews preempt anybody else ever doing the (laughs) definitive John Hall interview. The definitive John Hall interview has been done twice by Stephen Colbert. You guys seem to have, during your time as a congressman, a very special kind of rapport. Well, I I like to think so. It goes by in a flash, being on Colbert. It's a short show. It's only half an hour, not counting commercials. And you get to talk to him beforehand. I got through my press secretary who knew his booker was don't try to be him let him be the funny guy you be the straight guy and everything will go fine and of course he mainly asks people to be on his show who he's interested in some way so things should go well but i was too tired i was doing 12 or 13 hour days of campaigning i was too tired to um, do anything but be the straight man and some of the stuff on the cutting room floor is funnier than what actually showed up on uh, on the TV. But it was he's he's a ringer. He actually can really sing, as you've yeah. noticed, I'm sure. And when he asked if we could sing uh, "Dance with Me," when I came back the night after the elect, two nights after the election, and did it for the second time, he asked as a you know gesture of uh, bipartisanship if I would vote for Denny Hastert for speaker. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I couldn't. And uh, he said, in that case, it's a gesture of solidarity would you sing the national anthem with me and i said of course and he said i'll sing the bass part <laughs> and he proceeded to sing basically what's the tuba part the, mm. oh say can you see by the dawn's early light oh what so proudly we have etc it's exactly you know right off the, the sheet music for the bass singers and i asked him later if he had been in glee club and he said yes He's got some singing in his background and uh, makes use of it. Oh, yeah. No, I saw him do Sondheim's Company, uh, oh, really? you know, with a completely legit Broadway. I think it was sort of a Lincoln Center concert version. I mean, not fully staged and stuff, but he did it with a bunch of Broadway professionals, names that I cannot uh, reel off right now, but names you would know. And mm-hmm. and he did not, you know, fade into the background or fail to acquit himself at all. Yeah. I mean, he, he absolutely can for real sing. So, but enough about Stephen Colbert. Let's talk about John Hall. At that time, okay, so you won your elections in 2006 and in 2008. Uh, we won't talk about 2010. And 
looking at the pictures, the official congressional picture of you, there's this guy, this musician that I've been listening to for years and years, and he's in a suit and tie. I, I sort of thought about that, about the fact that there are cultures that kind of shape you, right? When you're a rock star, you don't appear in a suit and tie unless you're David Bowie. And when you're a congressman, you don't get up in a T-shirt, right? That At a certain point, you do have to sort of make certain concessions or, or tailor, quote unquote, who you are for the moment you're in. Right. It's a uniform in a way. I never wore a suit and tie except to a funeral or a wedding my whole life until I started campaigning. And uh, then I was, I was told by the people around me who were somewhat professional at this uh, that I had to do it. And so I did. But I was sad to lose the election because that was the first post-Citizens United election. And it's mm. significant for reasons that we'll find out as this country's history unfolds. But uh, I'm really happy to have that choking sensation go away of having the tie on every day. The, the other thing I, I learned is uh, that in some ways it's really nice to take care of yourself and to be master of your own schedule. But on the other hand, it's really nice to have somebody do that. It's kind of like being on tour with a band when you have a big crew and a road manager and a bus and a schedule and an itinerary. And, and you know, the road manager calls you up in the morning and says, uh, one hour from now in the lobby... And uh, there's always somebody leading you around. So another member of Congress told me after the 2010 election and when I had lost my tenure there uh, and was ending my tenure, this other member of Congress said, John, here's what you do. When you go home, get up every morning, go in the bathroom, look in the uh, closet and say, uh, hi, staff, good morning. (laughs) Because I would start off every day with a staff meeting when I was in D.C., there are many similarities between being a musician and being a politician. One is the product. You know, you have to get used to getting up in front of people and selling ideas, musical ideas or political, philosophical, environmental ideas. And you have to learn to have a thick skin and to not believe the good reviews, uh, you know, the best ones or the worst ones. The reality is always somewhere in between and, and uh, try to not take things personally. But my talent, I think, is uh, best used making music. Possibly. You know, you said you talked about 2010 being the first post-Citizens United election. 2006, your first victory, I think, was in many ways the really, truly first digitally driven election, at least in the sense that a whole group of people who had organized themselves to create journalism, not under the rubric of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal or ABC or NBC, but as Fire Dog Lake or Daily Coast or, you know, these kinds of websites, began to play a pretty significant role. Here in Connecticut, Joe Lieberman was challenged by Ned Lamont and was at least uh, denied the nomination of his party. Once again, partly because there were these new kind of organs of the press rising up that weren't bound by the rules uh, of the old organs of the press. I, I know Fire Dog Lake, I think, did write about you they in 2006. Did, uh, Blue America did, uh, Crooks and Liars did. There were a, a number of Democratic-leaning or further left than Democratic-leaning mm-hmm. websites or blogs who covered my campaign or who in- interviewed me. And um, we tried to have as active a, a web presence as possible. Now, today, I would be a hopeless dinosaur because there's so many other ones. It's not just right. having a website or a Facebook page. And I don't even think Facebook was uh, in 06 was no. a, a factor. But, you know, now every member of Congress has a staff member who tweets for them. I mean, it's really gotten to pass the ridiculous fifty. If you look at the uh, TV image on C-SPAN when the president is giving the State of the Union address, 
half of the members of Congress are sitting with their device in their hands and tweeting while they're listening to them. Once upon a time, it was just shouting, you lie. (laughs) I wish people had the decency and that we as a country had the attention span to listen to the speech and then react to it afterwards. We're talking to John Hall. Uh, He was a congressman. Uh, Before that, he was a producer, songwriter, and and music star. And he's back to being a music star. He's going to be at the Kate uh, in Old Saybrook on uh, August 2nd. So we will be doing love songs and traveling songs and philosophical stuff and a little bit of political stuff. It's not the show is not about politics. I just want to reassure people. I'm writing a book about it. And when it comes out, which I hope will be soon, then uh, anybody who wants to know more about my political sideways promotion into <laughs> politics and then back again. There'll be plenty about that. But we do a mixture of uh, songs from all the Orleans records, going all the way back to our first one that we caught in 1973 in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, up to our new double release, No More Than You Can Handle, which is half live and half studio recordings, and includes a lot of songs that you've heard already if you're familiar with the band and a few uh, songs that are previously unreleased. And we're doing even newer songs in the show. We've got a bunch of stuff that we are working on uh, that's being developed before your very eyes, and uh, at least one of those we'll do uh, at the Cape. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, bring this up. We're going to play a little clip of a song, and I'm going to warn everybody who's listening right now. There are songs that are earworms, you know, songs that are just sort of sort of catchy that, you know, they'll kind of stay in your head a little bit. And then there's this song, which if I play a little bit of it, you are going to be singing it to yourself for the next two or three hours, and you may not be entirely happy about that. So, you know, I don't know if you want to turn on your radio for 20 seconds. I'll understand. But it's got to be one of the most infectious songs in the history of pop music. Here it goes. So, John Hall, this song is with you for the rest of your life. Uh, and it is. Look, let's be honest about it. This this is a song. You say Orleans to me. I start singing it under my breath. Pretty soon I'm singing it out loud. It, it, there is something about this song that it just inserts itself into people's consciousnesses in a way that I'm sure it's lightning in a bottle, right? You wish you could write 10 more songs. That <laughs> yeah, it was lightning in a bottle that we had to cut three times before we got it right. And Chuck Plotkin, our uh, producer, a couple of records, the one with Dance With Me, the hit version of Dance With Me, and also the Waking and Dreaming album that had still the one on it. Chuck knew that we had to get that song right. And the first time and the second time in the studio, we had not gotten it right. And he made us go back and do it a different way the third time. And that's what the hit became. It's just a magic combination at that time in our musical lives. And um, I think it was a really good song. And Larry Hoppin, uh, uh, rest his soul, did a great job singing it. I think we as a group did a great job singing the backups behind him. The double lead guitar work, which Fly Amaro and I now do, uh, playing virtually note for note during that section of the song, is pretty special. We were on the same label with the Eagles at the time, 
who were signed by David Geffen to Asylum Records, and the Eagles were doing this double lead guitar harmony stuff, and we, we took it as a personal challenge to try to, every record we put out, to try to do something that was as complicated and, and melodic, but complicated as possible with two electric lead guitars, knowing that they were going to hear it, and that... Uh, you know, we're not on the same level with them in terms of success, but we were surely competing with them musically and with other bands who were out at the time. So uh, sometimes music is just uh, surely hard, and other times it, it is competition, because as I heard interviews with the Beatles say, you know, they were aware of what Brian Wilson was writing, yes. and that they didn't want to have chord progressions that were less sophisticated than his. And thanks for playing that, by the way. That, still the one put my daughter through college, and... <laughs> and uh, has over the years been the one song that was used more than any other in films and TV and commercials and so on. So it's paid for a lot of bad songs along the way. John Hall, it's so great to talk to you. It's so exciting. I, I love Orleans, and it's sort of part of a kind of a musical tradition. There was sort of something called the Woodstock Sound that included you guys and the fabulous Rhinestones. Bob Lineback, obviously, is the bridge between mm-hmm. those two bands and, and Rundgren for a while while he was uh, up there, too. It's kind of a uh, a very, I don't know, it's got a, it's sort of a blue-eyed soul kind of sound that uh, it's in my blood anyway. So I'm <laughs> thrilled to be able to talk to you about this. Now, one thing we, we're doing, we, this is a three-part show. Uh, it's you, Seth Avitt from the Avitt Brothers, and J- Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket. Seth Avitt has already mentioned Elton John. You've already mentioned Elton John. I have to get Glenn Phillips when I interview him okay. to mention uh, Elton John somehow. But we're also we are asking each guest to pick the song that we'll go out on, as long as we can we can dig it up somehow. Uh, any song of yours that you'd like us to well, yeah, end this Well, yeah, what I was going to ask you to do would be play a song from the new CD called I Need a Break from My Vacation. <laughs> All right. Which uh, a lot of people within your listening range will probably take a liking to. It's a uh, common sentiment. <laughs> yes. And uh, my wife, Melanie, and I put it together and uh, co-wrote it, and Orleans did a uh, good version as well. As, it's also on my John Hall Rock Me on the Water CD, but this is the first time Orleans has, has released it, and uh, it's the song we're kind of focusing on right now from this compilation, the new uh, double CD package. All right, John Hall, so great to talk to you. Looking forward to having you in Connecticut, in Old Seabrook at the Kate on August 2nd. Hope to see you there. All right, thanks, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My kids are planning their escape from paradise. They miss their friends and their TV. You're still the one who can scratch my itch. On the other hand, it would be nice if you didn't give me this rash in the first place. 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich and Brittany Hill. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Better Than Ezra. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff lip-syncing to Mbop by Hanson, visit our website, WNPR.org. Tomorrow, one hell of a show about hell. And now, back to Colin. Someone get the ladder Bradley took a spell Said his leg was broken So we dragged him down the So uh, you just uh, heard some of Is It For Me? Might be my favorite Toad the Wet Sprocket song. It'd be hard for me to say, actually. I'm, I feel as though I am one of the older Toad the Wet Sprocket fans and maybe one of the more annoying Toad the Wet Sprocket fans in the sense that I'm the kind of Toad the Wet Sprocket fan. I know a lot of the music, and I sort of know the lyrics, but not really. So I will sing the wrong words to the lyrics. And uh, if prompted during this interview, I might. Glenn Phillips is here with us. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. How do you do? And um, second of all, we should say that on August 28th, uh, so many exciting things is ha- are happening. Toad is back, and the Infinity Hall in downtown Hartford is opening. Uh, you guys will be the very first act ever to perform at the Infinity yeah, Hall in Hartford. Which is an honor. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, you will, you will make history. And I think it's also a part of the public television, the PBS Infinity Live series. So I think you'll be mm-hmm. making television history as well. This is uh, all very cool. Toad the Wet Sprockets kind of had this unusual arc. I mean, it's it's this band that kind of nominally dis- disbanded in the late 1990s, but you never fully said goodbye to one another. It, it's you sort of gotten back and kind of toured a little bit, and then last year thought, what the heck, we should make a Toad the Wet Sprocket CD or mm-hmm. album or whatever you call them. So, and you took kind of an unusual route, right? Kickstarter? Uh, yeah, we kind of figured that we weren't, we didn't think we could just walk in and get a record deal. I mean, the, the business has changed significantly, and we know we're not the Pixies. I mean, we're not the cool kids getting back together. So um, we we knew there would be, the fans would want it, but the industry might not be quite as warm to us as our fans would be. So we decided to kind of uh, eliminate the middleman and go straight to them, and it worked out really nicely. I think Kickstarter is great. I don't know if I'd recommend it for a band that doesn't already have an audience. Right. Because it's certainly not a way to build one. But if you have access to people who already want to hear what you do, it's kind of an amazing way to jumpstart a record. So we asked for 50000 I think we ended up raising 264000 which was great. It paid for the record. It paid for... We spent more than thirty grand on shipping alone just to get stuff to people. It's kind of amazing what that part costs. But uh, we were able to, you know, make the record, make all the stuff for the people, get it to them, and also be able to pay, you know, a radio person and a publicist, and kind of have the team pay and and own the record on top of it. So, I mean, we certainly didn't have anything left over to pocket. But what was amazing is to put out a record and not be in debt. And uh, <laughs> bands don't usually get to do that. <laughs> right. So it's sort of like going you to have a crushing debt and you're paying it back. You know, you sell a record and the company gets six dollars and you you get one to pay back your debt. Right. <laughs> and it was a really great way to put out a record. Putting out an album usually it's like going to dental school. People think you're making a lot of money, but basically you're just paying back the dental school. Um, it would be like. 
going to dental school if you were a dentist who sold T-shirts. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you get a crown, it's like, but do you, how about some? How about some T-shirts? My dentist really does sell T-shirts. Is that unusual? I didn't even realize that. I didn't realize that that he was does. not typical. Yeah. So he's paying off the student loan. Yeah, there's a little gift shop as you walk out. You can buy stuff. <laughs> uh, it's nice. So the, the new CD, we should say, uh, I don't even know if you call them albums anymore. Uh, the new CD is called Actually, New. Album is proper because album is a collection of things. Right, that seems right. That seems like something yeah. that won't be won't be and driven a record, out. And a record is a recording, long play vinyl or eight track. You yeah. can't say eight. You can't track. say those things. But I feel lexicographically comfortable with with album now. <laughs> uh, I've been listening to it today. I like it a lot. I'm going. It's called New Constellation. But I'm going mm-hmm. to let Glenn pick between two tracks tracks that I like a lot. I like Rare Bird and I like I'll Bet on You. So which one would you like mm-hmm. us to play a cut of right now? Which one do you think really sort of Oh, what's your station format? <laughs> this is a public radio station. We don't play music. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you're on public playing. radio right now. Oh, that's why we're talking so much. That's right, uh, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> and you finish sentences and you're not shouting at me. I mean, I would say for kind of old school Toad fans, mm-hmm. Bet On You is kind of more in the wheelhouse. Yeah. A, yeah. a riff rock song. Rare Bird is, yeah, an interesting more... Kind of takes us. I don't know. What do right. you, do you, Let's play, are we'll you play. feeling romantic, or are you feeling kind of? Well, uh, not towards or... you, but uh, um, no, I will play. Uh, I'll bet on you. So we're talking to Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket, who's just discovered that he's on public radio, which means, yes, you can use words of three syllables. There's like a whole series of uh, things that <laughs> you know may occur to you to do. We should actually say the other thing about this, Glenn, is that public radio listeners tend to span a pretty large age gamut. Some of them are a little too old to have participated in Toad the Wet Sprocket, uh, and they may also not uh, understand the name. Now, I was enough of a Monty Python nerd so that when you came on the scene, I didn't have to look it up. I already knew exactly where it came from. But for those people who are listening going, Toad the who, the what, what is this? Explain where the name comes from. Uh, the name was an unfortunate placeholder that became permanent, uh, <laughs> but we didn't have a cool name, and we wanted a cool name. And then we had our first gig, and our bass player and I are both huge Money Python fans, and we both had the contractual obligation record that had the rock notes sketch on it, which is basically, it's like a rock news program, fake rock news with terrible band names, and the first one of them is Toad the Wet Sprocket. We considered being poached herring in a white wine sauce, which is another band name from the sketch, but we went with Toad the Wet Sprocket. And uh, we just kept it around for a year because nobody ever wrote it correctly in the local papers because <laughs> we wanted to see if they could get it right. And then it was kind of too late to change it. We still didn't have a cool name, so it stuck. <laughs> so 
we didn't try to have the worst band name ever. We just kind of ended up with it. <laughs> but it kind of amplifies all your previous accomplishments, too. I mean, you know, if you'd been called The Commitments, this would have been so much easier. Yeah, and then we could have broken up after one record. Well, that's actually, yeah. So you saw yeah. that movie, too. <laughs> this raises the question, though, did you ever come professionally into contact with Eric Idle or any other Monty Python member? Was there ever a meeting of the Toads? Eric wrote us a nice note saying that if we ever earned a gold record, he would love it if we would send us, and then he would never call his lawyers on us. <laughs> and so we sent him a we sent him a gold record, and he was quite appreciative. And aside from that, John Cleese I've met a couple times just because he's a Santa Barbara person. So I've, I bumped into John Cleese. I doubt he'd remember me, but I do remember him. You're far too self-deprecating. By the way, I want to correct something uh, that you said earlier in the interview. As far as I'm concerned, you are the cool kids. You're kind, but I, you got to also figure that we were really earnest nerds. And I don't know if earnestness is ever totally in fashion, but we were over-earnest and we were nerdly before nerds ran the world. <laughs> and, and there was a, a tipping point, I think. Uh, I think we spoke authentically about our feeling. You know, there's a vulnerable aspect to the band that, and we came out at a time where vulnerable was not in. What was in was aggression. And, you know, the more aggressive you were, the, the more depth you had, I felt. And we weren't very aggressive. I don't know. I, I feel like at least the indie cool scene, we always wanted to be part of it. But I think we kind of never really fit in very well with the other rock bands. But I think there were a lot of chemistry departments, biology departments, where <laughs> we were a favorite. <laughs> and those people stuck with us. But who knows? I mean, maybe every band, every musical artist feels some version of this. It could be right now at this very moment somewhere else in the world. Some member of the Pixies is saying, I don't ever really feel we had the kind of cerebral uh, cred <laughs> that, that Toad the Wet Sprocket had. You know, I just don't think really that we were taken seriously by people. You I know. doubt any member of the Pixies is <laughs> But you don't know that. <laughs> I, I mean, don't know that for a fact. It was a really weird time because also the indie world was just starting to get signed on the major labels. People were feeling very protective of their indie cred. And I don't know, we, we were a scapegoat. I mean, there was a columnist in Tower Pulse who basically used us as the punchline in every column he wrote. For, really? <laughs> for over, yeah. We were the symbol for the major labels screwing up indie music. So you, you didn't alternate <laughs> you, even alternate you and the Goo Goo Dolls? It was you every time? No, that was back when the Goo Goo Dolls were still indie. Um, that was before the Goo Goo Dolls had hits. I and think, they put out a lot of records before they had hits. Oh, I see that I did not know. Um, oh, I, yeah, they, and they were, they were like replacements fanatics. They were very authentic, like replacements worshipping indie dudes. Actually, there was a guy on the show who made a documentary about the replacements. The replacements are this sort of weird Tigris and Euphrates from which all kinds of things go trickling down. I think the only and they're thing, on the road again. Yeah, I know. I think the only thing you really missed was Grey's Anatomy. You know, I think your timing was a little off to have yeah. a song on Grey's Anatomy. No, and, could have had a great career if, if, <laughs> if Grey's Anatomy if you, I needed time for that. You did have a great career. You have had a, you're having a great career, career right now. But we could have had the second bump. <laughs> it absolutely. You guys were made for a Grey's Anatomy uh, <laughs> shout out. We're talking to uh, Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket right now. They will launch 
just to sort of help you understand this, too, really, you know, this kind of venue for downtown Hartford, it's a really big deal. I mean, we really haven't had something like this for a very, very long time. We have sort of a great jazz and blues venue, and then we have, like, mm-hmm. enormous cavernous coliseums and stuff like that. But to have something like this size where a group like you would come, it's going to be kind of a big deal. It's a great thing. And i got to say, I mean, Infinity Hall is a really rare I mean, the original Infinity Hall, for people who haven't been there, is is a really special um, venue. I mean, not everybody cares the way they care. I mean, they made it a priority to make the audience really happy, to make the bands feel really welcome. That You walk in there and you feel like they're not just selling beer, they're actually trying to sell a musical experience. And I'm excited to see what they do at the brand new building. Honestly, I wouldn't say about most places, right. uh, <laughs> uh, but they really have always gone the extra mile. So I'm really excited to see what they've done there. Yeah, no, they're great. And in both the Norfolk location and the new one, they sell my dentist T-shirt. So uh, it really is a it's a full service kind of place. <laughs> All right. So, Glenn Phillips, we, it's been so great to visit with you. And I really have enjoyed I'm I'm a 59 year old Toad the Wet Sprocket fan. What could be less cool than that? But that's totally cool. That's totally cool. See, we've affirmed each other. Oh, first of all, I have to ask you, what's your favorite Elton John song? I go with Rocket Man just because, I mean, I think the music is great on Rocket Man, and I think it's possibly the best terrible lyric ever written. (laughs) I mean, for a classic song that people play over and over, you get Mars ain't a place to raise your kids. In fact, it's cold as hell, and there's no one there to raise them if you did, which is when you More speak than nonsensical, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's still a great song. Yeah. Currently, for me, it's uh, Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's. Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's is a great song to mm. sing. Late at night when you're walking the dog. It just sort of uh, still sums up society right now. All right, so you get to pick the Toad the Wet Sprocket song we go out on. Anything from the catalog. I'm assuming you want something from New Constellation, but you get to name the name. Why don't we do from New Constellation, how about Golden Age? Golden like Age it is. It's a great song. Thanks for joining us, Glenn Phillips. Thank you. Take care and All right. look forward to see you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. And all we are is vanity Comics playing tragedy And I traded in my sanity Dream that soon abandoned me. God loves madman, but I wore his patience through. I'm Kyone Wolf. I'll be opening for Toad the Wet Sprocket with my new band, Frog the Damp Gear Wheel. We'll be taking requests.